Due to the graphic nature of the personal accounts and content discussed in this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Many episodes will include graphic personal accounts and discussions of child sexual assault, domestic violence, physical abuse, rape, sexual situations, and suicide. So today we're talking to Billy Dinkle. He and I met on Twitter, and we both had the same interest in speaking out against child sexual assault and sharing our stories. So we really appreciate that he's willing to be vulnerable today and share his story with all of us and that we can all learn from each other. We just want to welcome you to the show, Billy. A wonderful thing you're doing. Well, thank you. We're excited to have you. Thank you for being vulnerable and willing to share your story. It helps all of us to heal, and I'm hoping that it'll help you to heal as well. Yeah, it's a long time coming, and I'm a firm believer that the more of us that can speak out can help encourage other more, more people to speak out. Right By us speaking, it gives bravery to others and courage to others. I agree. So we're going to allow you to get started in your story, and we'll just ask questions here and there and only interrupt you if you need us to or if you want us to ask you a question, okay? Yeah, I feel asked a lot of questions. I decided to speak out, to, to begin speaking out uh, on October 15th, uh, 2018. It was Break the Silence Day on Facebook in Minnesota. And I was actually sitting in a deer stand, freezing my butt off, and thought to myself that I was going to do it. I was going to post on Facebook in front of the world, my friends and family, that I had been sexually abused from the age of eight till I was 13. I was able to fight off my abuser when I was uh, 13 years old. So the summer I turned eight years old, a person who was a mentally, I guess what I would say is a mentally hand, mentally handicapped or mentally challenged farmhand. He was my brother-in-law's, it gets a little bit complicated, but it's my brother-in-law's younger brother. My sister and my brother-in-law, after they were married, purchased one of my father's farms directly across the country road from the farm I grew up on, from our home farm, and uh, what would be the Dinkle family farm. And so George came to live with them in the summer of 1976. Uh, he had started to visit like in the spring and help them on the farm. And I believe uh, what I found out years later is that the reason George was brought to Long Prairie to live with Ken and Mary Ellen is because he was abusing other children at their home farm or the farm they grew up on in Buckman, Minnesota. Wow. They followed the church's example, right? The Roman Catholic church's example of 
instead of actually stopping it or removing this person from access to children or so let's do what we do with the priests, let's just move them. Let's do what the church does, let's just move them and pray for a better outcome. I'm a firm believer that prayer without, without wisdom is begging and that action without prayer is chance. And so what they decided to do was they were going to pray harder and they were going to keep a closer eye on it. Ken was more available or more likely to keep control of George and, uh, and keep him away from children than his older mother and father were. And so obviously that failed. George started grooming me uh, shortly after, like I said, I turned eight, June 25th of 1976. And George started grooming me almost immediately. I, I went to a Catholic, very strict Catholic grade school, grammar school. And so we didn't learn, at eight years old, I wasn't learning body parts, right? I wasn't learning um, sexuality or how the body worked or what the human body, um, how the human body functioned or where babies came from, right? Wasn't, certainly wasn't learning it at home from this intense Catholic, uber-traditional Catholic family, right? We weren't talking about body parts at home. We were saying the rosary every night at 9 o'clock. As any 8-year-old boy would be, just about, I was curious about the human body. And so George was going to be my buddy. Even though George was 19, uh, 18, 19 years old at that point, he had the mind of about a 13-year-old, uh, is what we you know, is what we kind of found out later. And so George was going to be my buddy. I was going to learn the naughty stuff from George, right? I was going to, he was going to, teach me about a woman's body and I was going to figure out what my body was for and why was my body different than the, than the girls in my class and just different things like that. And so, of course, that's part of, George had done this before. This wasn't George's first rodeo, right? He had done this with other kids before. And I, th I believe that it was done to him also. I can't prove that. I don't know any more than that. But I believe that George, this wasn't something George just thought up on his own on how to groom a child. And so George would, it was interesting, it, not interesting, but interesting for an eight-year-old boy who was curious. And you know, George would ask, hey, did you get the Sears catalog or did, the, did you get the latest um, Montgomery Wards catalog in the mail? Well, if you remember, Montgomery Wards and Sears sold bras and underpants, right? So, yep. hey, I was, where was I going to get dirty pictures on the farm, on a, on a very strict Roman Catholic farm? going to a, uh, a very strict uh, Roman Catholic grammar school, we didn't have biology, you know, pictures of women's bodies in our biology books, right? So we looked and literally looked in the Sears robot catalog, the big, thick Sears and robot catalog would come and mm -hmm. we would look in there and, and things would, my body would react to that, right? And so George would, that was George's game. That was how he was going to get me to react. And pretty soon I had gone skiing on a slope where I couldn't stop the avalanche, right? All of a sudden, this 225-pound man who was 5'9 could overpower this 80-pound eight, 8-year-old boy, or however much you weigh when you're, 80, when you're 8 years old. And it was going places I did not want it to go, right? He was touching me. He was forcing me to touch him. What started out as curiosity pretty soon became a car careening down a hill without brakes that I couldn't stop. And so... It very quickly, within months, turned into um, sometimes very severe and violent childhood sexual abuse, right? Uh, I say in my talks that my mother asked me only one time did she ever ask me why there was blood in my underwear. Mm -hmm. And once I answered her, she never asked me again. She never asked me again because she knew. She knew why there was blood in my underwear. So when I was eight years old, the fall, towards the fall, that end of that summer... 
I walked into the kitchen of our of our farm home, of our small dairy farm in, in central Minnesota, and I, my mom was there. I'll never forget it. I'll never ever forget it. My mom had a apron on, and she was. My mom was an incredibly hard worker. She had to make all the meals, keep the house relatively clean, help on the farm. Right? She helped milk the cows. She helped feed the young stock. She also had. I was number ten of twelve. So. Oh my gosh. Plus, I had two younger brothers. So. Even and an older sister of mine had passed away, nineteen at nineteen months shortly before I was born. So she had this incredibly high stress level. She was working incredibly hard to keep this whole functioning farm together, trying to keep her children safe. And this eight-year-old boy walks in the kitchen and says, "Hey, I, I George is touching me and it hurts me." Mm-hmm. It took me years to think, to, it took me years to forgive my mom, right? To understand that at that moment, my mother had an opportunity to change the course of my life. Literally, that moment is a pivotal point in my life. Mm-hmm. Like the most pivotal point in my life, probably. And she turned to me and she raised her hand. She wiped her hands on her apron and she raised her hand as if she was going to slap me. And she says, shush, he is not. Don't ever say that again. Oh wow! This continued for over four more, for almost four and a half more years. Wow! Oh my God! And every mother says, "How could you? How could you not? You know, how could you not save your child?" But I looked at it. I look at it these days from such a different point of view. My mother's father died when she was very young, and they were very poor. Her grandparents were Polish immigrants, Central Minnesota. Her father died. There were seven children. I believe there were seven children still alive at that time. So single mother, seven kids. You know, so her mom, single mother, seven kids. I guarantee you in the 30s and 40s in rural Minnesota that my mother was either sexually abused, physically abused, or felt somewhat abandoned. Right? She had some level, high level of childhood trauma that she also had to deal with. Right? It wasn't like she yeah. could school a counselor and say, hey, by the way, my dad died and the neighbor guy is touching me. Or, or whatever. Right? It's not going to be open to counseling or help or trauma, trauma food or therapy like we want people to be now or we expect people to be now. Right. And she's also married to my father, who was a rageaholic. My father's answer to everything was rage, just unbridled rage. And I believe that there was domestic violence there. And if there was not, I know there was child abuse physical child abuse, verbal abuse, condescending psychological abuse, uh, every time we made a mistake, or in his opinion, we made a mistake. So that kind of sets up that picture. So in her mind, at that moment, her son is saying, hey, I'm being hurt by this guy. She's thinking, hey, buck up, kiddo. We all got shit, right? Excuse my language, but I got so much going on that worrying about what's happening to you is not my top priority. She's thinking... If I tell my husband this, he's going to kill George. He's going to go to prison. We're going to lose the farm, and I'm going to end up like I was when I was a kid, having to move back to my grandmother's farm without a father. I mean, you know, you and I and all of us know, traumatized people know what happens in our minds when we face relatively simple tasks during the day, right? Right. There's not a time during the day. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think, man, I'm a loser, and what am I doing here? I'm wasting the oxygen on this planet for these other people. And that's because of my trauma, right? So mm-hmm. imagine if you're, if you're presented with a real obstacle, as in 
this eight-year-old son of yours is coming to you and saying that he's being sexually abused, she might rationalize her inaction by saying, I don't want to create even more trauma, right? Yeah. Part of organized religion is to keep everybody calm, right? Mm -hmm. Let's feed everybody and keep them quiet so that we don't have revolution. In her mind, she's thinking, I don't want you to get out of hand. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna pretend this isn't happening. But so, how do they keep you calm? They gaslight you and try to make you not believe what's happening to you and try to rationalize what's happening to you so that you also rationalize it to yourself and then you begin gaslighting yourself and telling yourself it's not such a big deal and exactly what you're doing right now, making it so that you know you try to make sense of everything. And I think that's something that all of us do as, as survivors, trying to make sense of things. And sometimes that also means, like what you said about George, is that he probably was also abused but it still doesn't make it so that it's okay what he did absolutely and i believe that 100 we even now as an adult just like you were saying i still justify my mother's inaction in order yeah. to forgive her i almost had to justify my mother's inaction mm -hmm. so so i've come to a point where i've forgiven my mom for her inaction there's other things that i'm still working on forgiving her for you know ridiculing my wife, not calling my wife by her last name. My wife kept her last name in the Catholic Church. That's not... It was like it was like she had murdered someone in a previous life or something. I like crazy. But it's very difficult. I used to not be able to tell that story without crying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It always reminds me of Vander Kolk. And if you... I'm, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but it, but it sounds like you're very tra trauma familiar by listening to your, to your show, to your podcast of uh, Bissell Vander Kolk, right? The Body Keeps Score. Yeah. And, yeah. If your listeners haven't read that book, I, and their, their trauma, if they they are trauma familiar or they want to be trauma familiar, I highly recommend uh, Bissell van der Kolk's work. There's a story he tells about a woman in, when he had first opened his practice in New York, and a woman that had been recently raped, and she came in, and the first time she told her story, she was disheveled and crying, and she could barely keep catch her breath, and and she could barely talk about the rape, and she almost got up and left during the first session. And, and then he talks about asking her to speak about it and, and not even having to prompt her to speak about it. And then it evolves into, by the fourth session, she's sitting back in the chair, legs crossed, arms, arms not folded, and talking about her rape. Almost mm -hmm. talking verbatim the same words she used the first session, but she's not crying uncontrollably. She's not disheveled. She owns it. Right? This is something that happened to her, but it's not something that has to affect her daily life. Yeah. As a matter of fact, right? It, she has now she now owns that story instead of that story owning her. Right. And I've come to that point in telling my story because I have a lot of people who say, How can you talk about these things on Facebook or Twitter? And how do you do these speaking engagements without crying? Or without like how do you do it? Like and, and because they are still getting familiar with their stories, right? They're still trying to reach that wounded child inside of them so they can be comfortable talking about it or they can be comfortable even telling a therapist about it, right? Mm -hmm. So my practicing and, and becoming familiar with what happened to me also opens little doors into other things that happened to me, right? Yep. Now, if I think about the time I was sodomized in the hay, you know, the times I was sodomized in the hay mound, it might open a door in my mind to the time it was in the grass in the pasture next to the, the old oak tree. Mm -hmm. Or it might 
think have me think about the fellatio I was forced to perform in the grove of trees behind the house or the 10 times I was forced to do that. So becoming more familiar with whatever you can, whatever part of it you can remember and then gaining ownership of that part, I believe, as Dr. Vanderpool talks about, will help you open doors into a wider, the wider maze of your trauma, right? And you can own more of it. And then you can relate to how you how you handled alcoholism or sex addiction or mm-hmm. whatever it medication, self-medication that particular victim or survivor used to get through it without, let's face it, the reason we call ourselves survivors is a lot of people don't survive. Right. They drink yeah. themselves to death, they, they met themselves to death or they hang themselves over, you know, we know how this works. This doesn't end well for severely traumatized people. One of the, after about my fourth session with my current therapist, who I've been seeing for almost seven years, she leaned back in her chair and she said, how are you not in prison or dead? Yep. I've thought no. those same things about myself when doing that ACE score, the Adverse Childhood Events score, and seeing that I'm an eight on the ACE score, and knowing that I'm, I'm there and realizing that so many people that I talk to, uh, that I see in, in my practice, that I, um, I recognize that trauma, but I also see that these people that see me have been addicted to drugs, have been in jail, have... I, I, I wonder how I didn't end up on the corner of this street called Colfax in Colorado prostituting myself, you know? Can I say something here? Sure. <clears throat> I think that both of you might be more advanced in understanding some of these things than I do because I'm still at the place where when I tell my story, I'm disassociated from it completely. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I actually talked about this with someone last night where I think that my response to trauma was hypervigilance in sinking myself into the raising of my family because mm-hmm. I was 15 when I got married and that was the point that I was safe enough to tell anybody what had happened to me and what I did was I hyper focused into my fam- my own family of raising my own family I disconnected from extended family around me and I was hyper vigilant about raising my own children and maintaining my own marriage. And then as this has come up now, almost 40 years, well, 30 years from being 15, but 40 years or so from, from being abused, it is a new thing for me because I've sort of, my survival mechanism was living a resilient sort of life, but it was also removed from whatever the trauma was. So when people say to me, how come you can't let the past be in the past or whatever like that? For me, there's this block of 35 years or so where I was totally in the mode of being disassociated from what happened and focusing on raising family And here now at the age of 46, I'm, shoot, now I'm getting emotional, but now I'm facing it really for the first time, right? So so I don't cry often. I'm still sort of in the place where I um, 
I, I'm still doing that. I'm a strong bitch, man. You know, <laughs> I, I, and, and I'm able to remove myself from that. But so, so it can be a new thing for people too, even though it happened then in the past. Kinder, we taught, if you've read or you talk about, you know, we talk about how people handle this or how it, how it resurfaces, right? Like if you read um, Harris's book, uh, The Deepest Well, mm-hmm. um, the, the Surgeon General of California, she, I don't know if you're familiar with this book, but I highly recommend this to, to people who are, who are where you're at, Dana, on working on trauma. And we're, we're, none of us are, none of us will ever be free and clear of our trauma. Right. We can we can put on our armor and we can walk down the street like kings, right? Whatever. There's a couple uh, books that I that I recently purchased about from two NHL hockey, NHL hockey players who were sexually abused by coaches when they were teenagers. Well, they went on to play in the NHL. You would think, well, that that abuse that's not abuse that helped you. They they're not affected by that. Mm-hmm. But but like you said, they're hyper vigilant on success. They focus yeah. their lives. This will, as with ACEs, this will all resurface, whether we want it to or not. Unless we're killed, unless we take our own life somehow or we're killed in a car accident, we will suffer a shortened lifespan, higher incidences of sickness, of terminal illnesses. We will fall, trip and fall and hurt ourselves more often. We will carry the pain of our trauma at an extremely high cost. Mm-hmm financially, physically, and emotionally, and psychologically than a, than a non-traumatized person. It just will. And, and as much as we white-knuckle it and want to come and, and do the things that, that, that you do, because millions of people do those things, it will, it will resurface. Yeah. It will come back to us. Somehow it will come back to us. High blood pressure, obesity, whatever, whatever it is, we will, our bodies will remember, and that's the idea behind the, the body keeps score is the body will will make us pay for the trauma that other people have inflicted on us and I believe that I, it, complex PTSD will will show up I mean, yeah. it just will show up well when you're talking about complex PTSD I think about what so Dana I'm going to use your story first as an example uh, well when Dana was first abused that was the, ori- the original insult and then trying to tell her family at 15 that's re-traumatization you know it's a secondary um, abuse secondary trauma and then when she comes out again so at 15 she wasn't believed or she was believed to a point but it wasn't really handled appropriately and she lost family relationships and then now again as she's telling her story or as she is a approaching the situation where she finds out that there's more survivors um, of her original abuser, you're silenced again. And so, Billy, yours, you know, you were eight years old. You tried to tell your mom. She was aware. Your original abuse is being abused by George, but then you're abused again or you're re-traumatized by your mother not listening to you. And it's all about keeping the secret. It's all about keeping the silence. It's all about protecting the family or the reputation or the abuser rather than making sure that we as survivors are actually um, okay, that we are going to survive this insult that we are going to survive the abuse so instead of stopping it and making it so that we're going to be okay they allow it to continue or they allow us to believe that we're not believed or we're not going to ever be listened to i call it when i talk i call it saving you saving my family was saving their front seat in church Mm -hmm. right 
we can't be embarrassed by a sex scandal on the farm, so we're not. We're just going to pretend this doesn't happen. Right. And that ongoing abuse. We'll talk more about that. But yeah. yeah. I want to step back for one second and say, okay, so so childhood sexual abuse. If I were just to tell the story of my childhood sexual abuse, I told a little bit about my my father and 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 how the how we were treated on the farm. But I want to picture. I want to tell a little bit about that tumult that is behind some of that, right? So this wasn't a. It wasn't like it was blue skies and we were having a picnic and all of a sudden one day I was sexually abused, right? It was from the earliest times I can remember. I can remember being, you know, I was tenth of twelve birth of live births. So in my family, so. So I was a burden. I was expensive. I was incredibly expensive. <laughs> I was. I can't believe you're sick so much. Why are you crying? Look what you look how you make your mother feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, God's not going to love you if you act this way. Do you want to go to hell? You mm-hmm. know, from the time I was two or three years old, it's this. And and I'm not even talking about the violence. It's this psychological. There's a, there's a four word track that my father used until until long after I left for college was what good are you? What good are you? Oh wow! Say that to a three year old, a four year old, five year old. Say that to an eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve year old boy who's being sexually abused. Mm-hmm. Enough times you don't even you don't even have to hit that kid for him to understand that he's not worth it. He's yeah. not worth saving. Wow. That that this family doesn't value me. That kid doesn't even have to know what value, what 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 a child being valued looks like, but mm-hmm. understand that they're not valued, right? Yeah. So I always try to paint the picture of the way it was, which was an incredibly stormy sky. We're in the middle of, of Hudson Bay, and it's it's raining sleet, and so it wasn't like this calm, cool day where everything was glorious, and then George abused. A bunch of people on the farm. Mm-hmm. It was my older brothers and sisters had trauma too, and, and 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 part of that leads into telling those people about what happened to me, kicks them back into their trauma. Mm-hmm. All the attention. Mom and Dad never wanted to have so many kids. Or I can't believe you're talking about this. You know you're supposed to respect your, the memory of your mother and father. Or just one thing after another, instead of actually saying, you know. Things were pretty tough on the farm, and I can imagine how it must have been for you younger kids. You know, if you're coming at it from a position of empathy or a position of a healthy position of understanding, mm-hmm. my brothers and sisters, my older siblings, would have a much different reaction than they are now. Um, but they have their trauma, and they haven't they haven't addressed their trauma, and so they're coming at it with, "Well, you better have a good lawyer, motherfucker." You know, mm-hmm. about trauma because. It wasn't hidden on the farm. I mean, people, the older kids knew that once they had kids, they should keep them away from George. Mm-hmm. That's common knowledge. It wasn't something, I mean, they told people about it. I have people that have contacted me and said, hey, if you need me to sign an affidavit, I know that you're, I know that people knew about it on the farm, so it's, this isn't a secret. I mean, them saying that they didn't know is kind of a joke because it was, it happened. Like, people walked in on it. Okay. Ten, you know, my brother-in-law walking in on it several times. My sister Mary Ellen walking in on it. You know, they were the ones that were in that were responsible for him, right? Responsible George, yeah. And so it's it's laughable to think that the, that this that we that this family didn't know about it. When I was nine years old, probably about a year, I would say it's probably a year or so after uh, I told my mother, 
it was it had gotten very bad, and and, and I, I say things like, "Hey, an eight-year-old boy," and it, and they're triggering sometimes. And I always try to say before I speak to people that I'm very forthright about what happened, and I use gra- sometimes graphic because I don't believe molestation and touching, and mm-hmm. I don't think words have worked. I've tried to use yes. those words to change childhood sexual abuse from happening, and it and it's not working. So mm-hmm. now we're very honest about it, right? right. That's what I. Yes, my, please. You know, my tact is going to be: I'm going to tell you what happened, and you're going to be grossed out, and you're going to want to turn it off, but then you're going to want to protect your child. That's yeah. that's my that's part of my message. Yeah. So when I say that no eight year old boy should know what the taste of a man's sperm is. No eight-year-old boy should know what a man's sperm tastes like. Nowhere in the world should that be allowed. And it shouldn't have been allowed on the Dinkle family farms. But dozens of times that George forced me to perform fellatio on him, not even dozens, it was over the course of five years. If it happened one or two times a week, we're talking about hundreds of times that George abused my body. Okay? And you talk about, you know, dissociation and this transcendental view of of life or of this boy that's being abused. I distinctly remember being in the corner up above, floating above in the corner of George's room, watching him. I don't, in the, in the traditional sense of the word rape, I don't know that George ever inserted his penis in, in my, in, inside my anus. George would take things and put them inside my anus. So, which is rape, technical rape, right? That's, a, that's Dick, Webster's dictionary and rape. But most people, when they think about rape, they think about, you know, homosexual sex, right? That's mm-hmm. what they think. They think penis and anus, that's that's the only rape. Now, rape is any time your body is without your consent. So anyway, I distinctly remember watching this boy be abused and, if, and then realizing that it's me. Or peeking over the George's shoulder and seeing my face. I could see it. And, and, and though that damages us on a molecular level. Mm-hmm. And Vanderkolk talks about the body keeping score. He is not wrong. Mm-hmm. Each cell of our body he numbers the, those eight pieces. And I think that, and, and those will come up later in life, like we talked about the ACEs. People with higher ACE scores have shorter lives. People with higher ACE scores have higher instances of cancer, of heart disease, of obesity, of you know, Crohn's disease. I mean, if you go down the line, people with higher ACE scores have more things physically wrong with their bodies. That's just, I think that's just how it works. We've allowed the church to kind of dictate, and by the church I mean the Roman Catholic Church and the other church, and other churches have taken their cue from them to dictate this silence, right? It's not happening, it doesn't happen here. You know, Michigan State doesn't have a, gym, a, a gymnastics coach that's touching anyone. Don't turn yourself away, nothing to see here. Or, you know, Penn State doesn't have a football coach that's an assistant football coach that's showering with little boys. Turn, you know, turn your eyes away. How could the, how could the paternal ever have known? You know, no way did he know. It's, it's absolute bottlecock to think that the sub, the executives at Subway didn't know that Jared was watching porn on his home computer for nine months before they fired Jared. We have example after example after example of leaders in our institutions, whether it be our families, our universities, our high schools, I use the example of the school in Long Prairie has never had a childhood sexual abuse case referred to the local police. The school's existed for over a hundred years. It is statistically impossible for that school to have never had a childhood 
hundreds of people have contacted me and said I was abused by this teacher or I was abused by that student or I was and never has one of those kids ever said, hey, we're going to call the police and you're going to tell the police what happened. That's impossible. Mm-hmm. We are mishandling. We are, why do we think there's so much damage to our children in society? Because we are mishandling. We are pretending because of our reputations and our, and our egos and our hubris, just like you said, mm-hmm. we are pretending this, that our children are so resilient that they can handle the weight of, of our pride. Yep. And, and I'm telling you, I'm here to tell you, they can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, too many people out there who are killing themselves, whether it be through actual suicide or drinking themselves to death or mething themselves to death or hanging or dying of HIV or whatever it is. There's too much proof for us to think that children are resilient enough to overcome childhood sexual abuse. It's impossible. It's just impossible. So back to my story because I get off track. Sorry. <laughs> When I was nine years old, I got up the courage, and I'm so proud of this young boy. I'm so proud of myself, so proud of that little boy, mm-hmm. that I got up the nerve after Mass, after serving Mass one day, I told Father Ebner that George was touching me and it hurt me. I kind of, that was my mantra. That was my little, that was how I was going to talk to him, get someone to help me. Like, George is touching me, and it's touching me where I can, and it really hurts me. And that was my, how this kid who all of a sudden knew a whole bunch of stuff about sex, that's how I was going to get help. I'll never forget it. I'll never. I, I said this when I told my mom. I say it when I told Father Edmund. He sits back in his chair and he kind of chuckles and he goes, Billy, what do you want me to do about it? Oh. This, a priest in 1977, or 70, let's say it's 1977. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm fucking nine. I'm nine. I don't know. The 50 year old, 53 year old me wants to slap him in the face and say, anything do anything about it do something care about the flock right instead of caring about what my dad put in the in the coffers every week the 12 percent or 10 percent that he was tithing care about the kid Mm -hmm. how about pretend to care about the kid if i can go back in time to any time it wouldn't be to kill george it would be to slap that priest in the face as a grown man and so i believe that he probably did talk to my mother. My, pro- my mother probably said, yep, we're taking care of it, we're handling it. But here's the most amazing part of that story. George was, a, by this time, a 20-year-old man who was mentally challenged and was volunteering at the church. He served Mass in that church for another two decades, for over, for almost 25 years. He had direct access to other boys my age, you know, that 8, 9, 10, 12-year-old boy that was that's serving mass for over two decades, for almost two and a half decades. The priest knew because I told not only Father Ebner, but later in life I told Father Brits. So the church knew that George had a, had a hankering for, ha- for touching, for touching, here we go, even I do it, for having sexual contact with little boys, and they still, and my family knew. Let's not forget that my family knew this too. And they still allowed to be a, a server at mass of, you know, and you know, you understand what I'm talking about when I say server at mass, right? The altar boys, mm-hmm. the black and white cassocks on. For 25 years, George was a server. Into the 90s, George was a server and a volunteer. I've been contacted by two other, who, after I got George to stop touching me, who were touched in church and the only connection they had with George was through was the church. He had touched them at church 
in the sacristy before or after Mass. And it, what blows me away is that the Roman Catholic Church had to be, it had to be mandated in Minnesota, and I believe it was 1992 or 1993, that priests be mandatory reporters. Right. What, what the hell? It took till it took 1,992 years for the priests in Minnesota to be told that they had to call the cops if a kid was being sexualized by an adult. Mm-hmm. That's pretty what the church, the church had to be told that by law. In my case, I found out something about Utah law also is one of the reasons that we had a, a problem prosecuting my uncle was although in Utah they have changed the laws now after 2008 that what happened to me, which was technically called aggravated forcible sodomy upon a child, that... Um, which now is a first-degree felony, and there are no statute of limitations on it after the year of 2008. But anyone who that happened to prior to 2008 still has a statute of limitations. But not only that, before the year 1984, there were no laws on Utah books about child sexual Um, assault at all so my case happened and again my brain is freezing so I can't do the math but 82 83 and so my my case was prior to that and and so when they were trying to decide how to prosecute my uncle that had to be taken under consideration and so incredible isn't it it is that's what we have to do Mm -hmm. it's incredible. It is, and I, I'm so sorry that you experienced those things. And it's we, we were there. There literally is only two things that will help cure trauma: the instant a child or a survivor comes forth and tells their story. There's only two things that will help that that healing, and that's love and support. Mm-hmm. And to see the love and support, well, it will always be re-traumatizing, will it not? Just like you were saying. Every time the parent says, yeah, I don't know if that's really true because Uncle Bobby's such a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Every time our law, our justice system says, yeah, but the statute of limitations is over, so why don't you just get over it? Mm-hmm. That's re-traumatizing because it, because it, it proves to that child that, that you're worthless. You're, what, what happens to you is worthless, is meaningless. That it's fine, that it's not a big enough deal that we should have to put the limitations on it at all and say that that at some point these crimes expire because we don't want to damage the lives of the perpetrators Mm -hmm. is ludicrous. How many times have we heard a judge or a teacher or or a university president or a CEO say, well, you know, you know, we don't want this to get out because even Brett Kavanaugh, we don't want to even we don't want to hurt his reputation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't like. I think that someone's reputation can handle someone accusing them of something. You know, the two percent of the last the two percent of the times that it's false accusations, I think our I think our egos and our hubris can handle the the, the less than two percent of the time that it's actually false. And mm-hmm. I don't even believe that it's false then, yeah. because a child never come forward and say that but you're right we value uh, you know I'll go down a rabbit hole but it's this white 
male privilege of, well, we have to take care of our families. Our egos can't be damaged because mm -hmm. we might not be able to get hired at the next job or whatever it is. Yep. You know, right? might not get the professorship at the next university if we are defamed or whatever. And it's we came to this problem with love and empathy. If someone who was falsely accused or accused at all came at this problem with love and empathy and support and said, this person obviously needs help. I can say that I don't I don't see that situation same, but let's listen to them and let's validate what they have to say and let's try and figure out what happened and let's give them some safety and healing. This whole problem would be different. This mm -hmm. whole problem, our whole society would see this problem differently. Yeah, I want to add to that um, what you were just saying about the perpetrator not being able to get a job. Something that that brought up for me is that in the Mormon church, there is a situation where men who have abused children, if they're a father and them going to jail is going to create an issue for the church having to then support the mother and the children or ward members having to support the mother and the children because the father went to jail for what he did, then they're going to hide it because that's a, a burden upon the church and upon the other people in their ward or their group. So it's never about the victim, ever. It's always about the reputation, the burden on, on the church, the burden on the family, but never about the individual person who's been abused. One other thing, too, is that we're thinking about, like, individual perpetrators, but what we need to understand is these perpetrators have a whole slew of victims. Mm -hmm. So while we're not wanting to damage or hurt the life of the perpetrator who we're hoping can be rehabilitated and just not do it anymore, we're ignoring completely this slew of victims that it has affected who, you know, go on to have problems in society as well. Mm -hmm. and, and we have to keep in mind that the statistics right now are that it, it's something like one in every four girls and one in every six boys who have been abused. So this is a society problem with so much more than just the abuser. Every mm -hmm. time someone who's really brave and who is able to go to a, a, the authorities and bring charges up on, on, the, on this one perpetrator, you have to recognize that that perpetrator represents a whole bunch of victims. And, and not only that, but that perpetrator is one in hundreds who, who have been through the process to get to the point where they're even being prosecuted. Mm -hmm. Because not every reported case is ever even prosecuted. Mm -hmm. And Kendra and I, through doing this podcast, we're hearing from people all the time. Mm -hmm. I, I had someone send me something the other day where they're trying to, to press charges against someone. And this person has been accused so many times and they've never been, quote, quote, they've never been able to prosecute him. If you can get somebody to the point of prosecution, you have skipped over hundreds who never even get to that place. Mm -hmm. And of those hundreds, those those hundreds of perpetrators represent hundreds and hundreds of victims. 
So when we're ignoring this as a society, or we want to say shit like, I do this, okay? I always say the situation with my uncle, the whole thing that happened with my uncle, the time that I had the problem with my uncle, or the situation that came up with my uncle. Every time I'm saying that, I am also putting a pretty face on something that is a society problem. There, There's hundreds of thousands that this is happening to or has mm-hmm. happened to, mm-hmm. and it will happen to. We, we minimize it, right? Because we're taught to minimize it. But mm-hmm. like this, my, my family calls it trouble with George. Mm-hmm. It's trouble with George. <laughs> but, but we minimize it because we want duckies and bunnies and we want rainbows and unicorns and we want, you know, rainbow stew and free bubble up. And we want everything to be happy. A perpetrator, and it's in the story in the St. Cloud Times, that my, the story that was written or that was published June 7th of 2020, uh, my story in the St. Cloud Times, who, by the way, I, I just have to applaud the St. Cloud Times for taking on the story, and Nora Hurdle, the reporter who did it, because she did a fantastic job on it, being very brave in an in a extremely Catholic central Minnesota, very dairy farm oriented. This was a very brave story for them to publish, and I, and I appreciate that every time I, I think about what they must have gone through, because they got threats, and they got, I mean, it was just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And so, there's an expert in there that says, and I forget their name, but they said a perpetrator that's not reported to police can't have more than north of 50 victims over the course of a lifetime. I think it's even higher than that. Mm-hmm. I'm of opportunity. Like you said, if, if the person who abused me, George Otremba, would have abused runway models, he would have. George wasn't a homosexual. George wasn't a sexual deviant. It was a crime of opportunity. His release, sexual release, was little boys. Why? Because they, my family allowed it. Mm-hmm. That was where the balloon was the weakest, right? They kept him away from supermodels. They kept him away from the girls in the family. They kept him away, you know, the people that weren't valuable enough to keep him away from were the little boys. Like this, this Roman Catholic Church thing that, well, we let homosexual priests be priests and look at the problems we've had. It's all... BS. I don't care what a person's sexual preference is. What I care is, is that you allowed this to happen. And as a society, just like you said, we minimalize it. We call it molestation. We call it touching. We call it trouble. We call it um, this problem with my uncle, right? We are minimizing the problems that we're that we are putting loading onto these children because we we are praying to God that this child is more resilient than my pride is. Mm-hmm. Yes. Patient. Right. My family right now is when they listen to this podcast will be shitting bricks because I'm still talking about it because their reputation and their pride and their hubris can't take the fact that someone's talking about what really happened on the farm. Mm-hmm. And what we need are those people to, in those gymnasts at Michigan State. We need those young football recruits at or uh, children at Penn State. We need all across America, every university, every institution, anytime. And the families, I have had hundreds of girls who I knew growing up contact me and say, I'm forced to sit at the same table as my abuser on every Thanksgiving. I'm forced to let my, to make my children give him a hug. Hmm. My grandpa a hug every Christmas. We, as a society, 
are turning a blind eye to children like you and me. We are purposely doing it and we're allowing it. And I am frankly totally fed up with it. And if my family wants to piss on me on Twitter or wants to tell me that I'm lying or stand up and say they didn't know or how, or you're lying or there's no way that could have happened or oh, my one sister, oh, it wasn't that bad. But she claims she didn't know. How could she know, not know and know that it wasn't that bad? Mm-hmm. Lie. This continual lie to protect their reputation is killing us. Mm-hmm. I guarantee that trauma people, trauma familiar people, know someone that committed suicide not because they were a bad person but mm-hmm. because something couldn't get through something that they that they experienced as a child or as a young adult yeah. most people don't commit suicide because gosh this world just isn't what they told me it was mm-hmm. that's not people commit suicide people commit suicide because something happened they couldn't they can't mentally fathom i for the longest time couldn't mentally fathom my family believing that I was so worthless, that I was such a burden, that they couldn't even keep George away from me for a week at a time. But it was more important for my mom and dad to go to polka lessons than it was to not have George babysit me. I'm quite frankly sick of pretending that it didn't happen. I'm tired of protecting people's reputations. Mm-hmm. So they had George babysitting you? Oh yeah. Even after they knew what was happening? George abused people on that farm in Long Prairie for over two decades. My family knew what was happening to me, and I can't tell any of the other victims' story. That's up to them. Here's a nice little anecdote. We're shoveling out calf pens one time in the in the calf barn, and we didn't have a... My father didn't believe in, in skid loaders, because it was like just when skid loaders were becoming popular. So we still hand shoveled out these calf pens, and then we put straw down in the calves room. Young stock would go to the bathroom, and then a couple months later, he'd shovel out the straw, and he'd put new straw down. And I distinctly remember one of my older brothers saying, hey, if you don't hurry up and get this done, we'll let you be here alone with George and finish it. So it's, it's become a threat. It was, it was this common knowledge kind of, hey, I know you're afraid of George, and we know why you're afraid of George, and if you don't, like, it became this, it was almost a joke. It, was almost, it wasn't almost a joke, it was a joke. I remember members of my family saying, well, if we hurry up, you and George can have some alone time. And I've had people like justify it, right? Like say, well, you know, it was so traumatic on the farm with, with, your, with your dad and, and how terrible things were. And they were just trying to get through it. Kind of like joking about war, you know? Mm-hmm. Like soldiers do in, in high trauma situations like war. But I don't care, it's still wrong. I'm still going to tell those stories. Mm -hmm. I get to tell my truth. And so telling my mother about it and having her not believe it or not do anything about it, telling my my priest, the representative of God in my life as a nine-year-old boy about it and having him not do anything, convinced me mentally that not even God cared about what was happening to me. Yeah. Right? Even at night. Like, I tell people, I have this friend who told me once, she said, we were talking about suicide, and she said, I said, have you ever thought about suicide? And she said, I've thought about it. And she thought, no, I've, I've never really thought about taking my own life. I have thought about taking my own life since the summer of 1976, every day. How many eight-year-old boys think about killing themselves, you know? But they're so afraid of hell that they don't do it. Like, it's difficult to explain to people the reality that was, or, or the petri dish that was the Dinkle family farm. You read my story, I, I, tell, I tell a story about sending a letter to my brother who was a firefighter out west and 
receiving a letter back, you know, in that letter I said, hey, George is, I'm happy, George is touching me. And in his return letter, there's no mention of it. Like, did he get that letter? I don't know. My mom, he claims he never got that letter. My mom used to help me write those letters and help me send them and make sure the address was right and make sure the stamp was a fixed rate. You know, I was a nine, ten year old boy. There's a chance he probably never, he maybe not, didn't get that letter. Mm -hmm. There's a chance that my sister who walked in on it, no, there's not a chance. My sister Mary Ellen who walked in on it didn't know what was happening. No. There's no chance. No, because she already knew that that was the reason he came to live with them. That's why he was there. Absolutely. And so, you know, we can make up these pretend excuses like, yeah, but they're really such good people. You know, I I get that. Like, you'll see my my tweets every once in a while that, like, someone from 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 the church they attend will say, wow, I don't know how you can be so evil to your family. They're, they're such good people, and I'm sure they just did the best they could. That was, that's one of my favorites. I'm sure they just did the best. They did the best they could to protect their reputation, right? The secret of a sexual abuser of children on Dinkle Family Farm, they did their best to protect that secret. Mm-hmm. Of, of, so I'm going to kind of fast forward a little bit to the end and kind of just tell you, and there is no real end, right, when it comes to trauma, but I... I, uh, a burden that I carry is a lot of shame and guilt about the victims that came after me. I've been contacted by 13 victims of Georgia Simba. When I was 13, the summer of my 13th birthday, uh, George tried to go down on me for the last time, and he made the mistake of leaving one of my shoes on. So a, a little bit of explanation is if you pull someone's pants down and you leave them at your ankle, it kind of ties up their feet. So George would pull my pants down, but he'd never take them off all the way. It was almost like he had done it before, right? Mm-hmm. And so he made the mistake this time. I was big and strong enough now. You know, uh, I was a big kid. He had left one of my shoes on, and the other foot had gotten all the way, I got all the way through my pants. Maybe not all the way through, but my pants folded over it, you know, so it wasn't, so I could get my foot out of the pant, the pant tie, so mm-hmm. to speak. And as he, as he would hold my arm and my torso and he would pull my pants down and then work, he had obviously done it enough times where he could perform a blowjob on me while holding my torso down and one of my arms and, and holding my legs from kicking him. Well, this time I was big and strong enough where he had, where he had left one of my shoes on and I pulled my foot through the pants enough where the other leg, the left leg with the shoe on could rear back and I kicked him and I kicked him and I kicked him in the face and he's, remember he's going he's kind of vulnerable because he's going down um, on me and I, I he bled so much he, I, it ended up he lost three teeth that day I don't know if more came out later and there was blood there was so much blood as a kid I'd never seen that much blood come out of a human being before and it was in his bedroom and so there was commotion and noise and he screamed and Ken came running in and I got knocked to the ground by Ken with a, you know, the open hand slap is the, if you hit a kid in the, behind the ear, you know, in the backside of the head, it doesn't show up at school, right? Mm-hmm. They can have a big bruise in their hair and, and the teacher doesn't ask questions. That's where my father would hit me. That's where my older brothers and sisters would hit me and, and they'd open hand hit. So you, so you didn't have swollen eyes or black eyes when you went to school or even cauliflower ears. You had, you had bruises in the back of your head when you went to school because that's how they, they had learned that probably from their own fathers and and so what have you done you know and it, and it became this Billy's got an anger anger problem it was never about 
where do you think Billy's anger problem came from? That Billy hates George, you know, or Billy can't control himself around George. He just wants to hit him all the time, you know, or what's the, what's the matter with you? I remember my father mm-hmm. when we were on the track, he had me cornered in one of the cabs and he's like, what the, what's your problem? What's the matter with you? I don't know, maybe I learned it from someone. But I'll never forget that was the last time that George ever tried to touch me in an inappropriate way. And, and I'll go back to the words that we were making fun of earlier. Like, that was the last time George ever tried to give me a blowjob or tried to touch me sexually. And it wasn't long after that that he had uh, dentures. You know, in, I was so expensive because I'm sure, I, I think, I was, it was hinted to me by my mother that they had to pay for them. And you cost us so much money. And no one ever saying, well, I'm glad you stopped it. Right? In my mind, I knew... And in hindsight, I know beyond any sh- any reasonable doubt that it didn't make that big of a difference to George because he just went on to the next victim. Then mm-hmm. I know that fact later after talking with some of those victims. So for years, so you carry that burden. But my, but my biggest burden through wasn't just the trauma, but after that incident into my uh, athletic years in high school was I knew beyond any reasonable doubt that he was touching people that I loved, other people that I loved, and that I was literally not doing anything about it. And the shame and the guilt of letting those people down is something that has come up in, in my therapy over the, over the decades almost as much as the, as the trauma itself, as the, as the sexual abuse itself. Because it almost like I allowed that to happen. I escaped from the concentration camp, but I didn't go back and rescue the rest of the people. Mm-hmm. I feel that. I feel that with you too. That's that's been my biggest issue is that I could have said something in my 20s. I could have said something. I mean, I said something at 15. Um, there was there was a that was how my stepdad was excommunicated from the Mormon Church. Um, they didn't do anything about it, and he was never turned into the police. But it wasn't my responsibility as a 15 year old to turn him into the police. It was my mom's responsibility, my dad's responsibility, the church's responsibility, who was excommunicating him. It wasn't my responsibility at that time, but I still feel guilty for the fact that there are probably other victims out there because he was never turned into the police. So I made a police report in October of 2018, and guess what? The statute of limitations is over. You know, so what do the what does the police department offer to me? They give me a victim's advocate, and they offer to me possibly some counseling that maybe they'll pay for. It's not. It's not appropriate. Like it's just not. Like that's not enough. So then he ends up dying this last year, my stepdad. He ends up dying this last year. And there's no restitution. There's no um, repentance. There's no um, acknowledging what he did ever. And he gets to die. Gets to die. (laughs) You like those words? (laughs) Well, if you say something about it, you're you're dishonoring his memory, Mm -hmm. right? I I love that part, too, and that's sarcasm, obviously. Yeah. And in my situation, I talked about this last night, too. I, I mentioned this before, but Kendra and I, now that we're doing this podcast, we get approached uh, by a lot of stories and stuff. And I had this just mind-blowing phone call last night, so I was just talking about all of this stuff. In my situation, too, like, Tom tricked me. He told me he was sorry, and I took him at face value, and I accepted the apology. And I had forgiveness for him for all those years. And any time I ever did happen to tell the story, 
Tom got to be the hero of that story because he was the only one in my family who handled me correctly. And it was all the other adults who didn't because he apologized and he confessed. And then it's only after this year when I find out that his confession was all bullshit and his apology was bullshit and that there were more victims all throughout and um, he even had like recent victims it wasn't like it's something he did in his past when he was you know rough around the edges or he was just young it's something he did all throughout all of these decades that I didn't know because the family shunned me they pushed me away And my response to it was to survive and keep myself separated from all of them, keep my children, my husband, my marriage, everything separated from all of that. So I had no idea who he had become or what he had done, but I had assumed that the adults in the situation had handled it and that everybody else was safe. And so for me to find out last year that there were all of these other victims, I'm fucking pissed, man. Mm -hmm. I'm pissed off. And so when I come forward with the other victims and we're pressing charges and our cases are being dismissed one after another because of statutes of limitations, I'm out there desperately searching for other victims. And I'm sorry to get emotional, but I'm going everywhere I can think of because I know that there's victims somewhere where the statutes would, where he could still be prosecuted. So I'm going public and all of a sudden now he's threatening to kill himself and it's my responsibility to keep him alive? Mm -hmm. Is that my responsibility to keep him alive? And I said no. When they were saying maybe we should this is going to get dangerous. We're afraid one of he's going to take one of us with us. We, we need to maybe just be quiet for a while because maybe he is going to kill somebody else too. And my reaction was absolutely not. If y'all, if everyone wants to be quiet, that's fine. But whatever Tom does, it's outside of my control. And I know there's others out there and we, we have to get him. And he ended up, you know, dying by suicide. And and anyone who sits there and thinks, you know, at, at least you have your justice. At least at least he died. This is not justice. Not none of us got to face him in court. Mm-hmm. I didn't get my opportunity to to say to him, "Look, asshole, I know that you tricked me all this time." And I gave him over 30 years of forgiveness. I let him have a family. I let him have children. I let him have grandchildren. I left him alone. I left him in peace. He did his family and I did my family. And I'm pissed off that I gave him that when instead I should have freaking prosecuted him then. But But the system was against me because I was a 15-year-old pregnant person who they could discredit, and I was afraid of that, and I didn't want to drag my new family through the dirt and all of this. But my, my point is, 
we can't silence each other because we don't know what else this person has done and we are not responsible. And the, the other victims out there, just it just pisses me off so freaking much. Yeah. It, it's, it, I agree. I totally agree. And it, and, it, and it shouldn't be. We put so much burden on, our, on the victims in society. The, it's the victim's responsibility to remember every date and time and place and location, right? I look at Kathleen Blasey Ford, you know, uh, trying to accuse Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. You don't even remember the, I remember the your lawyer saying you didn't even know the address. Like, how, we put so much of a burden on the victim in society, and it's so not fair. I hate to say that it's not fair, but it's so asinine. Mm-hmm. Like, people say, well, I heard that you now think it's rape culture, that there's a rape culture. And I said, it absolutely is a rape culture because I have to prove that George did this to me. And I was an eight-year-old boy, mm-hmm. nine-year-old, 10-year-old boy, 11-year-old boy, 12-year-old boy. Because my family, because your family, didn't want to believe it so badly that they didn't help me. They didn't even give me support. So now I've got to, four decades later, talk about something that happened. And the onus is on me. I'm. I'm discrediting my family. My parents were such wonderful people. I'm discrediting Ken and Mary Ellen, and they were such wonderful people. And all of this burden that we put, that we lay on the victim for simply telling the truth. Mm-hmm. We didn't, I didn't, I would, when I was eight, I didn't say, hey, George, will you please abuse me for the next five years? I didn't ask for that. No. I didn't, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not, I wasn't paying George to do that to me. I didn't get anything out of it. But now I have to even pay more. There's even more of a psychological cost, just like Kimberly was saying earlier, of having to like carry this incredible cultural burden of of someone's reputation or, or someone's guilt or innocence or or someone's ability to live their lives or, or whether or not they're going to commit suicide or or how, how, now how do you feel now that they you know like I don't care how they felt. All I wanted was George to not touch me and my mom to say, and my mom to not raise her hand at me and hug me and say, he's not touching me anymore. That's what I wanted. That's what, that's all I wanted. You know, I wanted someone to help you. You know, I wanted, I I didn't, I'm so tired of this incredible burden that we put on victims and survivors of how, what are people going to think? People are going to laugh at you. People are going to say, like one of the first you know, the example of one of the first uh, Facebook messages I got after I came out, you know, to come full circle to the Break the Silence Day is, and a, a now not Facebook friend texted me and said, so are you saying you're gay now? What? Yeah. It doesn't even have anything to, what are you talking about? Mm. But this is the, these are the mantras that society has, this, this, this incredible desire to make it, to make the back end of the, donkey not dirty like i don't understand why our children our most valuable piece of our society the most valuable part of our anything right they're going to take care of us when we're old why wouldn't we want them to have the most carefree lives ever and the most why would why don't we want to protect children Mm -hmm. something that comes up with what you were just talking about is that even if we were to prosecute our abusers it's still not justice because 
when we have to go and stand before a jury or a judge or some corrupt institution that is um, going to re-victimize us again and again and again and we don't get the justice that we deserve, the person gets in, maybe they'll go to jail for 30 days or three years or whatever, we have a life sentence. They should also have a life sentence. You know, we are never going to get justice by using the justice system because the justice system does not work. The justice system is full of people just like your parents and your family and my parents and my family and Dana's parents and her family. It's it's not going to work using the justice system. The only way that we get justice is by talking about it and by getting other people to talk about it and by revealing our truth. Because what happens in the justice system also is that there's a non-disclosure agreement. We can't talk about it. After we've gotten justice, you know, quote unquote justice, right? We don't ever really get justice. We then are silenced again and told not to talk about it. We get some settlement. We get some, you know, he goes to jail maybe. Or the institution that protects them, like the Catholic Church, the Mormon Church, they end up getting um, being held responsible. And then maybe they give a settlement. And then you have a silence agreement. You have a non-disclosure agreement. You can no longer talk about it because that is, again, protecting the reputation of the organization. It's never about the victim, including when you go to court. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, this, is, this fits in right to what you guys are talking about. So, uh, well, I was a freshman at Winter on Athletic Scholarship, and we used to, as, as kids do, we would stay in the lobby, and on Wednesday nights, we would watch after the news, after the 10.30 news was over, or after the, at 10.30 when the news was over, we would watch Doctor Who. And somebody would bring, you know, maybe a 24-pack or a 12-pack or a 30-pack of strobes or whatever. And I remember distinctly one night, um, there, you know, there would be 10 or 12 or 15 of us in the lobby of the, of the dorm. And um, I remember one night I fell asleep during Doctor Who. And so they left me on the couch. I had slept on the, I was sleeping on the couch in my sweats and in, in, in a shirt. And um, I, will, I was having a sex dream. Uh, when people who are traumatized have sex dreams, they're not very pleasant. Generally, the abuser shows up. And so I woke up, and there was another student giving me a blowjob. And I was, first of all, in shock. And it's like 2 in the morning, and I am being sexually assaulted in the lobby of the dorm at the university. And I grabbed him. I remember it so clearly. You remember the old gray sweats with the white insides and the gray outsides that we had when we were in track when we were kids? Mm-hmm. I, remember, I remember getting up, pulling up my sweats. He was a shorter guy, but he was really chubby in a pockmarked face. Ken was his name. And I grabbed him and I threw him over the couch. And as I threw him over the couch, I mean, I was a 6'2", 205-pound athletic guy, farm boy, farm strong. And I threw him over the couch and the couch tipped back on its back. And he's down on the ground, and I'm just ready. I am, I swear to you, I was going to kill Ken. I was going to drive his note into his brain and they and sit there until they came to arrest me. That's what I was thinking. And I stopped with my arm back, and he's by this time he's gasping for air and bawling. And I said, Ken, I just saved your life. And I went yeah. back to my room, my dorm, which was the third door down on the right, and I sat in my room for 12 days. My roommate finally went to the campus priest, and they sent in the, the 
RA, the resident assistant, and I told him what happened, and they got the camp. He said, the campus priest wants to talk to you, Father Cook. And I had to go over to the administration building. I went and talked to him, and I talked to him for about an hour and 45 minutes, and it was, oh, gosh, you know, and, you know Ken doesn't have as easy a time getting the attention of girls as you do. And what? We got from Ken's point of view, and we don't want to involve the police, and you certainly don't want your parents to know that you had participated in homosexual activities on campus, did you? Do you? And, oh and just the whole, like, like it's a mantra, right? Like they have a clipboard that has what they're supposed to say on it. And drinking, and we certainly don't want, you know, boy, we don't want the police to know you were drinking on campus. And you like it here, right? You like your athletic scholarships, you, you, you know, basketball. You like playing basketball here, don't you? Because we don't want you to lose that. And so wow. it was like this rehearsed mantra, right? Okay, well, I'm glad we got that settled. Right before we leave, Sister Welder, who's the president of the university, wants to talk to you for just a little bit. Get, goes into her office, they whisper for a few minutes, he takes me, and it's all this fine, you know, nine-foot ceilings, fine oak doors and beautiful windows overlooking the Missouri River, and it's just majestic, you know. Then they walk me into her office, and she's this little old nun, and she's, her desk has got, like, world book, they're not world book encyclopedias, but these great books on them, and these big files, and it's kind of impressive, and it's this big oak desk, and she says, oh, I heard that you had an incident, and, and it sounds like Father Cook says that you're you're good with it now, you understand, you know, that, well, we just have this form we want you to sign. And 100% non-disclosure I agreed not to tell my parents. I agreed not to tell the police. I agreed not to hire an attorney. I agreed not to hold the university responsible in any way. Wow. I'm 18 years old. I am freaked out. Haven't eaten well for two weeks, or almost two weeks. Have barely showered for two weeks. I've lost like 10 pounds. I, I'm freaking, because I got thrown back psychologically into my childhood trauma, mm-hmm. right? It's George holding me down. I don't even get a copy of it, by the way. I sign it. If you need to take some time to go home, you know, we'll send you to back to Minnesota. We'll send you your assignments. Everything's going to be fine. Looks good. Looks good. Talk to her for about 20 minutes. That's all. Years later, I called the university and said, I want a copy of the non-disclosure. My attorney wants a copy of the non-disclosure agreement. We don't have, you know, I don't, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't, we do, we have a record. You were here and you were a very poor student. It looks like the second semester. Oh. And I'm like, wow. have a record of the, of the sexual assault? No. We don't have anything like that. It turns out the statute of limitations in North Dakota was like 20 years. I don't know. I don't even remember what it was. The statute of limitations is out. Every time the statute of limitations goes out, guess where those non-disclosure agreements go? They're gone. There's no evidence of it. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence of it. There's no evidence that Ken sexually assaulted me on campus and that they coerced me into signing a non-disclosure agreement. And I'm 18, so it's binding. No evidence. None whatsoever. And it was like it was old hat. It was like they did it every day. And so in my mind, I think about all the girls that were raped at that Catholic, little Catholic university that had to sign those non-disclosure agreements. In order to stay at school. In order to stay at school and not embarrass themselves in front of the families for being a, a slut or a drinker or wearing a tank top or whatever, whatever little mantra we use, right? Well, you shouldn't have went home with them. You know, whatever. Whatever, how, whatever shaming technique we use to make it look like the victim's fault. Remember mm-hmm. the onus back on the victim? Yep. That university to this day swears up and down that, that they had no they have no record. And so that's just how it worked. What happened to me the fresh my freshman year doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It, it does. Matter. 
It does matter. It matters to the 10,000 other victims that they mm -hmm. had, but it, in the reality of history, it's the winner who gets to write history. Mm -hmm. You see, Mary wrote history the way they wanted it. Yep. And the way they wanted it was I was a terrible student. Wow. That's how it worked, right? That's what we're talking about justice. Mm -hmm. There is no justice other than us speaking out. And I believe you, us three, don't make this connection without social media. That social media is the tool of the victim and the survivor. It is the yep. golden tool for the victim and survivor. Mm -hmm. Yes. Kendra and I have not really pushed for donations or anything to our podcast. As time goes on and we're able to tell more and more stories, to be honest, there's a sense of a fear inside of me, too, that as we tell stories and we become more dangerous, right. who, who's going to come after us, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Kendra and I have sort of done this out of a thing within ourselves, being survivors ourselves and having this be personally important to, to us. But we're kind of in a place where we're on a precipice, too, where where we need uh, people who are supporting our podcast and what we're trying to do to also help us financially so that we can get some protections under our belts as far as mm -hmm. uh, becoming like a, a nonprofit, um, getting some of those kinds of things in place, too. You know, we get called all the time. I, I, I get people say, oh, you're so brave for talking about this. And I'll tell you, I, I feel a lot of fear. That's what I feel. Mm -hmm. I'm determined, but I feel fear. While I'm having the opportunity of saying it, when when Kendra and I start really asking for donations, it's based on a on a real fear and not on a not on a help us grow, help us be uh, you know help us be popular or whatever. Because mm -hmm. we could give two shits about being popular. I'll tell you that I could give absolutely less than two shits about being popular because I'm a super private person. Mm -hmm. But um, but we are trying to do something important with the podcast, and we do need to, the listeners' support with this too. The number one fear is that one, that your accuser hires an attorney in bankruptcy. Like, right? Like, that's 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 what, you know, what if what if I start talking about the university and all of a sudden they hire an attorney and you have no proof of this, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay, where's the forum for us to talk about? Because Kathleen Blasey Ford couldn't remember the address of where Brett Kavanaugh tried to sexually assault her. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. Defamation is really hard to prove. Libel is, you know, that, that defamatory... It's very difficult, and so nobody usually even wins. Even if one side wins, nobody usually wins, unless there's a billionaire involved or you know somebody who can afford a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of, of, of you know a few hours of work of, of legal. But that's a real fear. That's a justified that you're justified having that fear because mm -hmm. there are because a lot of abusers are very powerful people mm -hmm. who are successful financially, or there's powerful people behind them, or they're powerful. And Donors, right? yeah. And you don't even have to win that case to destroy a life, right? Yeah. Because right. just the the thoughts of uh, you know just hiring a lawyer for mm -hmm. some people is something that they financially can't even do to mm -hmm. to um, to protect themselves. They can't even hire a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Most of them are paycheck to paycheck. The idea of standing up in public as an adult and saying that person sexually assaulted me when I was a child is beyond terrifying. Mm -hmm. 
not just because of the public image that you got that, that you're going to take on right you're going to take on this lioness cloud of dust and darth but you're also trying to say well that good person that stands in front of church and wails when they're supposed to wail and cheers when they're supposed to cheer and sings when they're supposed to sing they would never do that <laughs> trying to harm them because you're jealous of their everlasting love of god you know it, it's incredible the shit sorry to swear the shit I have been sent telling me I'd like to buy you and your older brother lunch sometime so that you can make peace. And I said, I'll pass. I'll pass on them. They know my phone number. If they want to make peace, they can make peace with me. Well, I just want to tell you, when I look in your, this is, this is verbatim. When I look in your brother's eyes, I see the eyes of Jesus. Oh, thank I you. Said, <laughs> I said, when I look in my brother's eyes, I see a brother who stood in the haymound and watched someone give me a blowjob when I was a child. That's what I see when I look in my brother's eyes. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. This, this, just that we're back to this burden, right? The image that we're gonna, that society is gonna push onto us if we're speaking out, like we have, like we can't get over, it. we yeah. can't, we can't let go of the past. Yeah. And to help other people, not have to let go, or not have to forget. Well, something that uh, comes up for me as we're talking about this is that I've actually never disclosed the name of my stepdad in in social media. Um, actually, I think I did maybe once, but I didn't disclose his whole name. And even now, like right now, right, I just want to say his name to see if maybe as people are listening that they, you know, if there's somebody else that comes forward that was abused by him, that they know that they're not alone. So his name was Ron Edler, Rondo Deloy Edler, and he was my stepdad. So oh my God, that's so brave! I love that's so I just love that. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It's a terrible burden that we have to carry. Mm-hmm. Well, because I still think I'm either. It's not that I was trying to protect his reputation, but it's the fear of disclosing his name. But why should I be afraid of disclosing his name? Fine. Right, the, it's the fear of the flying monkey. The, mm-hmm. the, you hurt my witch, so you hurt my warlock, so we're going to attack you. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I have felt free to say my abuser's name because he's dead. Mm-hmm. You can't sue me, right? Well, my abuser's dead now too. <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly enough, the abuser, the man who abused me, is also uh, passed away. I was just going over that before we started. Um, he was kicked. He was his, his crime that he was caught. Uh, criminal second degree conduct with a minor in 2001. He was convicted in 2002. Uh, and he was, get this, he was sentenced to 25 years of probation. That what? Was it. That was it. 25 years of probation. None of the other victims were contacted. Members of his family wrote, I think members of my family too, but members of his family wrote letters of support for him to the court. You know, where character letters? Yep. We were not contacted. Former victims were not contacted. And then in 2008, 2008, I think, he passed away, or 2006. At the age of 48, I think he passed away in 2006. And I, to this day, remember how uncomfortable it was for my mother to tell me that George had passed away. Almost like she didn't want me to have the satisfaction of him of knowing he was dead like mm-hmm. 
or almost like or um, or maybe like it was a little bit my fault that he was dead. Like it was just a really uncomfortable conversation hmm. that when my mother told me that George had passed away. It was just a very strange, strange, strange conversation. Well, what you said about um, letters of support, I that happens so often with predators and perpetrators in the Mormon church is that there's a letter of support for the, for the perpetrator when they go to court from the bishop, from um, other family members in the ward saying, oh, but he's such a wonderful person and these are all the wonderful things that he does and, and he would never do such a thing and these are all the reasons that he shouldn't go to jail or shouldn't be prosecuted and who sits in the courtroom without support? Who sits in the courtroom with all these people that are supposed to be their community and are supposed to be helping them and supporting them as the victim nobody including family members at times so family members just don't even show up to support the victim the victim is there by themselves so just like us speaking up right now us speaking up right now we're doing this by ourselves but with each other nobody else is, is behind us holding our hand or holding us up it is nobody else that, that had anything to do with the, the abuse. They, a lot of times, don't even show up in court because their reputation is on the line or what you know whatever the reason. But there's always support for the perpetrator to reduce the amount of time that they, that they are serving, to reduce the amount of burden on them or their family. They shouldn't go to jail because they have a family at home and they need to support that family. So if they go to jail, then how are they going to support their family? Well, that's not the issue. If they don't go to jail, how many more victims are they going to have? Right. That is the that is the most incredible burden. Nobody writes letters of support for us. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, um, I wanted to say my my uncle that one of my dad and my uncle's other siblings, who um, he called me a murderer and he holds me responsible for my uncle Tom's death. Before my uncle Tom died. And the cases were being closed, and I was trying to go public because I was, I I knew that there were more stories we were hearing about other people who he had abused, and I was looking for somebody who wouldn't fall under the statute of limitations. And so we had heard that he had raped a person, and that my uncle had knowledge of that. And so my, my cousins, which by the way, my uncle Tom's children really helped me with this. And they were the ones who put together all of the victims. But um, they asked me if I had a way to contact our other uncle to ask if we could get um, more information from him. So I contacted him through Facebook and I ended up having a phone conversation with him. And I told him, look, that this is what I'm doing. There's more victims. Uh, we, we know that there's other victims. We're looking for some who, who can still prosecute. And I know that you know, and will you help me? And his answer to me was, I know worse things than you will ever know. He said, I know of worse things that Tom has done than any of you are even accusing him of, but I will go to my grave with that information. And I said, well, you know, we can still get him. We can, we, I need this. And he said, I hate 
I hate Tom, and he told me all the reasons why he hates Tom. But he told me that he didn't believe that justice was a moral principle and that he would go to his grave before he would reveal those names. And he used the plural, so he had plural names that he could tell me, but he refused. But he said, if you do end up in court, I want to go with you. I will, I he said, I want to sit next to you in court because I want to see what his face looks like when he looks at you and he sees me sitting next to you. And he said he would only testify if, if he were forced to testify. Hmm. And then after Tom died, then he was the first one holding me responsible for Tom dying. So the way I look at what Kendra and I are doing is we are basically facilitators of stories. We are reporting on stories. We're essentially, well, we are. We're reporting on stories. We are telling the stories as we can. Mm-hmm. The megaphone, right? We're, this is part of that platform. This is such a part of the platform. Yeah. You know, at some point, you know, I, I, I always get to a point where I forget to talk about healing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah about the trauma, right? And so, at some point, a person has to stand up and talk about what have they done to survive? Mm-hmm. Like how did you survive? Remember when we talked about therapists saying, how are, you, how are you not in prison, or how are you not dead, or how are you not... The idea that I accidentally, or the universe somehow, allowed me to survive, whether it was first through alcoholism, and then through sex, and through, and all of these things, you know, combined, and, and and aligned and then through therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy and um, QNRT and quantum neural reset therapy and exercise and making sure I'm getting seven to nine hours of sleep and making sure that I'm not eating too much crap, right? Trying to eat more holistically and getting to a healthier weight. When I started, at one point in this journey, I was about 270 pounds and gotten down now to about uh, you know, I, mean, I always hang around that 215 right now, and I'm 6'2", and trying to live a healthier life, eating and exercising, and it starts with sleep, right? It starts mm-hmm. with rest. I, I have better days the days I get seven to nine hours of sleep. I have better days in the mornings when I can exercise, right? I didn't exercise this morning, so when we're done here, I'm going to go out. Um, and then eating, putting things into the garbage in, garbage out, right? So you put good things in, you get good things out of, your, out of my mind and my body. So trying to, um, most of our, most of the protein that my wife and I consume uh, is net, is wild game, right? So game that we harvest or fish that we caught or uh, you know, getting prepared for another elk hunt this fall, getting prepared for another deer hunt this fall and, and trying to live a little bit less like a, died in the wool manifest destiny white guy and living a little bit more like hey i'm part of this world and i want to you know i'm going to start recycling my plastic and you know mm-hmm. at least trying to do that. planting trees doing things like that right like we, um trying a little little not quite being a buddhist but yet not quite being the, the a railroad baron either right who's going to just destroy all the land and and, um, and and live like a king understanding that i'm here I had some really bad stuff happen to me. I didn't have the support I needed when I was a child. That now I'm a 53-year-old man and I can give myself that support. 
um, and trying to understand that without looking too far forward and not looking too far backward. It's difficult. Uh, I know that if you read some of my tweets, sometimes I do get caught in my trauma, and mm-hmm. I think it's very difficult to not. I know that at some points I am addicted to my self-pity, mm-hmm. and it's a very easy trap for me to fall into. Um, with not having family support, I have an amazing uh, Nancy. My wife is an amazing uh, support for me, and her family has been a, an amazing support. So, trying to live live more holistically and be more um, in gratitude, thankful for the game that I do get, thankful for the rest that I do get, thankful for the comforts that we have in our lives, and uh, maybe being a little more understanding of other people's trauma. I, I have a more clear picture now, an example of maybe why people end up in prison mm-hmm. than I when I was a dyed-in-the-wool Rush Limbaugh fan 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Understanding that the effects that life has on a child will always resurface, will always resurface. They will always resurface, mm-hmm. whether they have good impressions or bad impressions. Yeah. I just read an article the other day, and I wish I could remember the name of it or where it was. I think it was a USA Today article, but it was uh, from a university study of, and this is just an example, of children that are forced at a lot of sugar, just here, keep quiet, you know, sugar, 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 that those health ramifications health-wise almost always show up later in life, whether it's obviously diabetes, obesity, heart disease, cancer. But the children who are to have high levels of sugar intake, you know, we're feeding them fruit loops instead of, you know, having a healthy cereal that they really like, that will have higher instances of health problems later in life. And so we can learn from that, right? We're, yeah, I'm 53, but my plan is to die on the side of a mountain chasing after an elk or something when I'm in my 70s. So I still want to do, I still want to go another 20 or so years and so I can start putting some good in, good out. And I think the last five years I've, I've lost a lot of weight and I'm starting to sleep a little bit better, but also my therapy and my healing is more clear. Yeah. I do loss sometimes and depression and I still suffer from dysthymia and I'm still trying to not, I'm trying to do all this without taking medication. Mm-hmm. So. Not that there's anything wrong with medication, it's just for my personal system right now, I want to try and do that without being on meds, and, and I've spent the decades on meds, and now I want to try and do it without. And, and the three things that are most important are getting, getting the rest, exercising every day, and then just living more holistically and trying to put good things in my body. Don't pay any attention to the chocolate-covered caramels that are in my cupboard. All the things that you said, as far as your coping mechanisms and, and recovery and and relief are all also related with decreasing the stress hormones in our body. So decreasing cortisol, decreasing norepinephrine, those are related to our hypervigilance, our PTSD, our trauma. And so some of the best ways to reduce that stress on our bodies is to exercise, is to get enough sleep, um, is to eat well, you know, the things that you were just talking about. All those things will help us to be more resilient and able to handle our trauma or handle stress coming into our lives because as trauma survivors, we are constantly in a state of fight or flight. We're constantly in hypervigilance. So those are things that, that absolutely are going to help. The other thing that you had mentioned earlier, and I think maybe Dana had talked about this too, was the thing about hypervigilance and keeping yourself busy. It's pretty common for... Uh, us as trauma survivors to and other people you know the way that I coped also throughout my life was overwork 
you know, if you keep working, if you keep yourself busy, if you keep your mind busy, then you won't have to think about the trauma. So I, I dove into being a parent as well. You know, my, my first son was born when I was 19, and um, my, my daughter was born when I was 22. I have three kids that were under three, or that were three and under when my daughter was born. And being a mom, and then going to school, and then going to school, and then going to school, and working, and, you know, as long as I didn't have to think about my trauma, um, as long as I had other things to focus on, then I didn't have to focus on myself. But at night, that's very difficult, you know, when you try to push it all away and not think about it. And then at night, it all comes back because you're not thinking about other things. It all loads into your head when you're asleep, when you're asleep or when you're going to sleep, and then it's hard to sleep. So actually facing our trauma and, and talking about it and talking to a therapist about it, you know, medication can be great. I'm on medication, but... I would like to not be, you know, and as long as we are, you know, being honest with each other and talking to each other about what's, what has happened and getting it out, then our bodies will maybe not be keeping the score as much. Our bodies won't be reacting so much to our trauma because we're actually talking about it. It's not, we're not being silent about it. We've owned our own truth. Almost like, um, you know, I've done the 12 steps, or I've sat in the circle, right, and, and, and admitted to my fears that I was an alcoholic and I was powerless against alcohol. Or, and and so a little bit like that with, with trauma. I can sit here with you or I can sit with other tra trauma victims and survivors and say, I have have something that I want to learn from you. And, and, I, and I'm not sure what that is yet, but I'd really like to know your story. I want to know mm -hmm. how you made it to where you are. And I'm jealous, and I want to know. And, and the more times I do that, the more I'll know, and the more I'll understand how they, and how they did it. And, and how did you take off your armor? And how did you walk through life as a vulnerable human being that cared more? Because when, we're, when we don't have our armor on, it's easier for us to feel empathy and to understand and to, and to, and to love and support our fellow victims. Everyone in this world has, has trauma. I think we've established that everyone goes through trauma, right? Being born is traumatic for the baby. How does a 70-year-old woman make it to 70 years old and, and have the nerve to come up to me after one of my talks and say, I was abused by my grandfather for three years when I was seven? You know, how does that person make it to 70 years old without hurting anyone? I mean, she's carrying an incredible burden, and I want to know. I want to know. Did she pray about it? Did she meditate? Did she find, is she dealing with it now? Is it now harder for her because she didn't get a chance to visit with her husband about it when I first started speaking out and a man came in he's a big burly guy about six foot four and about 300 pounds and he came in and I saw that he looked like he had a cold his face was a little puffy and his eyes were a little red and I said oh I just wanted to catch up with you and, and, and then all of a sudden he's, I could tell him he was getting very emotional and he said and I just want to thank you and I was like well what are you talking about and uh he said, you know, when I was 17, I lied about my age so that I could get into the army because my uncle was having sex with me. And I've never been able to tell anyone about that. And for the first time in my life, my wife and I are in counseling, and I can tell her now why I can't make a noise during sex. Mm -hmm. First time in my life, for the last few months, I've been able to tell my children how much I love them and care about them, and I owe that in part to you. That's an incredible experience mm -hmm. for a man who had never allowed himself to be vulnerable to be vulnerable and, he, and this great big guy picks me I'm a, I'm a small guy I'm 215 pounds like 6'2 and he picks me up like nothing and gives me the biggest hug and like, 
these tears touched my cheek and I couldn't believe that telling my story, simply telling my story on social media had meant that much to someone like that and all of the hundreds of people that have messaged me and we owe that, I think, to each other. I applaud you guys so much because I really believe that those of us that can speak, it's our duty to speak. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in trauma sees trauma. When another person that has been traumatized or has has suffered abuse truly feels seen by another trauma survivor, even without talking, we see that pain. We can see people who have who have suffered. And when we actually speak up and we talk about what's happening and talk about what did happen, people do. They come out of the woodwork. They start telling us their stories. They start telling us that they have never told this to anyone else and they feel safe telling us or telling people that have also told their stories and have owned our stories and have learned how to be vulnerable like you said taking that armor off and and being willing to listen to people but also being able to hear and believe and see them and they feel safe to tell their story for the first time in a long time i had a person message me and asked if they if they could have a private conversation with me and I, and I agreed we just had this fantastic conversation but the reason that she said that she wanted to talk to me was because I had made a post on my Facebook about what I struggle through with with pain with my chronic pain and she had randomly made a, a comment on one of my posts and all I did was say something nice to her and she said that nobody says anything nice to her. That prompted her to, to want to talk to me about some of her personal struggles. And it was just somebody willing to look at her and, and be kind, say something nice to her. And that really struck me because at the time, I, I mean, I didn't even remember what I said. I, you know, it's not, it's not like I said anything super profound. It's just nice to her. And she, she hadn't been seen or had someone be nice to her in a really long time. It, it does make a difference. It's so true, right? There's, a, there's an old anecdote, and I don't remember the details or the professors or where it happened or who said it, but there's a story about uh, these professors being, these anthropologists being on stage and, and being asked when they thought civilization had started, when it began. One talked about this period, and another talked about another group of people who built cities, and another one talked about something else. And one of the other guys says, well, there's a fossil, and it was a man that it was a bipod that had a broken femur, but the leg had been set. So the leg had, was broken, but it had been set. And he said, I would offer that that's when civilization started. When a group of humanoids first stopped to help someone, because when you break your leg, if you're an animal and you break your leg, you're dead. Mm -hmm. Right, so are going to get you or for the first time that we've found a group of people someone stayed back with this human and set their leg helped them heal from this because they had lived it was obvious with the with the fossil that this person had lived after breaking their femur mm -hmm. and the anthropologist had, had argued that that's the point empathy right caring love and support but that's the point that civilization started which becomes then the fulcrum for all of civilization it's when we care that civilization truly exists. Mm -hmm. We can talk about art, we can talk about war, or we can talk about borders of nations, or who, who invented farming. 
But the real point is when did we start to care less about the group and more about the individual? And when did the, the group start to care about the individual? And that is really what it's about, right? It's about caring and it's about love and it's about support and empathy. And I believe that if there was a Jesus-like person or five people that became one, Jesus, <laughs> or whatever history tells us, right? Or whatever the, the people want to say, that the, re- the reality is that he came here to teach us not about love, but about empathy. Mm-hmm. Putting our minds, our psychological feeling, not our lizard brain, but our real feelings, and trying to see the world from someone else's point of view and say, you shouldn't have been treated like that as a child. And, I, and, and I'm here to tell you that I wish I could have stopped it. Even if I knew about it and I didn't stop it, I wish I could have had the power. I wish I would have had the brevity. I wish I would have had the nerve. I wish I would have had the courage. I wish this wouldn't have happened to you. And I'm sorry that it happened. And I think we all know people like this. I live in a family that can't even say, I'm sorry this happened to you. Or acknowledge that it happened to you. We live in a society that can't even say, I'm sorry this happened to you. How can we help? Mm -hmm. What we're doing today is changing that. We're just changing that every little bit. Mm -hmm. And every post we put on Twitter and every post we put on Facebook and every podcast you guys do is a little bit trying to say, I'm going to try and see the world from someone else's point of view because they might have had it a little bit harder than I did. Mm -hmm. Or even as hard as you did, you know? Yeah. It's not necessarily about comparing stories, but seeing each other and how my story affected me this way and your story affected you this way and the things that happened to you. It's not always about worse or better or that my story doesn't matter. It's about all of our stories matter. They all matter. The more people we encourage to speak out, the braver we are, the more brave other people will be. Yeah, and bravery, bravery isn't about the lack of fear. Being brave or having courage is doing it anyway. I'm really good at afraid, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But you're also courageous because you are here and you're speaking about it. Well, that was really good, you guys, both of you. I feel really good about this one, and I I really appreciate it. We had a few technical difficulties getting this started, and I'm so glad that we stuck it out. And I'm also very grateful for your patience because it's taken Kendra and I a little bit to kind of get our groove on, and we're so, so grateful that you had all of that patience to wait on us to get this figured out. It's really important and I feel really so good about this one so thank you so much mm-hmm. thank you for inviting me and I appreciate it and thank you for doing what you do because it's so important and I just appreciate you both so much thank you yeah. thank you is there anything you want to put a plug out there for any your twitter account maybe um, so well, people will be able to follow your story yeah if people hear it and they want to yeah, and they want to follow me or message me on Twitter, it's uh, it's at Billy Dinkle with a Y, so B-I-L-L-Y-D-I-N-K-E-L. It's I am one in six, so you can search that on Twitter. Um, and same on Facebook. I'm pretty open on Facebook, too. We are doing some speaking engagements, free speaking engagements. Um, we've driven, you know, so far we haven't driven too far, three and a half hours to do a couple, but um, we're getting out there more. I tell people this, I'm, I'm an expert on two things. I'm an expert on what happened to me. I'm an expert on how I've survived it and how what I've done to try and heal from it. So just mm-hmm. those two things. And my and my mission is really to encourage others to speak out as well. 
we're going to change some things. Along with hundreds, dozens of other people who are so brave and so strong, we passed a statute of limitations in Minnesota. So there is no statute of limitations on certain sex crimes in Minnesota starting September 15th. It's fantastic. We're the 18th state. We're, we're very proud of that. And then, you know, now we go on to the next thing, right? What, 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 whatever the next bill we think we can pass or whatever change we can make. And those little changes are exactly what you guys are doing. And it's getting the word out, getting your stories out encouraging other people to stay after our little talks and say, hey, I've never told anyone this before, but that's important. Yeah. Besides getting those statute of limitations changed, there's also an issue with being able to prosecute retroactively. So in states like Colorado and Utah, I guess Utah, did you say it was 2006, Dana? That's 2008. Yeah, after 2008, certain... Uh, crimes against children, certain sex crimes against children no longer have a statutes of limitations, but it's certain ones. Yeah. You can't retroactively go back and prosecute before 2008. And it's the same in lo- a lot of states. Like there's states that are, are opening it up for a, a year for people to retroactively get justice against either a person or an organization. Retroactively, we all need justice. We all need to be able to have that opportunity if we choose to use the court system. All of us who have been abused and our statute of limitations is up is not appropriate. How many those people are out there in positions of authority who are actually making those laws, who are actually um, supporting those laws, how many of them are actually perpetrators themselves? Protecting other Mm -hmm. Or have family members that were perpetrators and they're doing the best to protect their family member or an organization that has protected perpetrators. There's too many problems with not having a retroactive for everybody to take advantage of new laws about sexual limitations. I don't know if either of you have written a book or been a part of writing a book, but it's way bigger than, hey, I'm going to write a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really hard. You know, it, it, I maybe mentioned this a little bit on Twitter. I, it took me 16 years to graduate from college because of my lack of concentration and my, and my lack of self-worth, right? Like, yeah. I don't think this is the right answer. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know? I'll tell you one little anecdote story. My wife caught me sitting in front of my shoes, sitting on a bench, my shoes in front of me one time, and she said, you've been sitting there for 15 minutes, what are you doing? And I said, who will decide which shoe to put on first? Mm-hmm. And she said that that time she realized how, what an impression that my father made on me about the lack of confidence building and, and you know, you know, you help a kid make a decision on his own and he learns and then he makes another decision and, maybe makes another, and you help a child, you guys are mothers, you know how you kind of help someone gain a little confidence in their own decision making. It was easier to do nothing on the farm and wait to get yelled at for doing nothing than do anything and do it wrong. You, get, you got less beatings and you got less psychological abuse. And so it was really a, an accomplishment for me. The, the teasing of the older siblings that you're stupid and you're simple-minded and you're retired and all those things, yeah, every family, every big family has those. But in our family, it actually meant something because of the psychological abuse that accompanied it and the physical abuse. So, so this book thing is a challenge for me, but we're really we're working on it and doing it. And I think if you talk to me, like you, you guys just talked to me for two hours, you know that I'm probably not simple-minded, but, but that questioning of self Yeah, constantly wondering if what I'm doing is the right thing, being self-critical, constantly wondering how I'm being received by another person, if they understood me correctly, or if I need to re-clarify over and over and over again, making sure that I'm not being misunderstood, all those things, I, I absolutely hear you. Idea that 
am I, am I going to hell because I'm not respecting, honoring my father and mother? Mm-hmm. You know, everything that the Catholic, that shame and guilt, and shame and guilt, and the simple-mindedness, and the retard, and the whole thing, what good are you? That echoes in my mind with my inner remote. There's something called PTSD dissociative amnesia that is also diagnosed as ADD. So inability to start things, inability to have the confidence to start things, not knowing where to start, and then never getting started on things or never finishing a project. The symptoms of PTSD dissociative amnesia are the same as ADD. Yeah, and, and right, like you know, years ago they would just say that you're well, you have some form of mental illness. Yeah, there's a theory now that Rose Kennedy, if you remember, Rose Kennedy was put in uh, an asylum in Wisconsin, and then she was later given a lobotomy. Well, there's some evidence now that she was probably severely sexually abused when she was a child, when she was young, by her brothers, possibly, and even by other family members. All they ever do is say, like my family says it to this day, well, he suffers from mental illness, or he has mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Of course I do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I learned about violent sex when I was eight, mm-hmm. right? You know? right. You know? Yeah. What do you expect? Yeah. What do you want me to be? A rocket scientist? I know. They do that with me, too. I'm difficult. Mm-hmm. I'm difficult yeah. and I'm unreasonable. Uh-huh. Nobody wants to talk to Dana because I'm so unreasonable and I'm so difficult. Mm. But you know <laughs> yeah. what? What did they do with women? Um, and probably Rose Kennedy was part of this, but what did they do with women back in the olden days? They called us hysterical, usually around this age, what we're doing right now. We would be considered hysterical because we're actually speaking up. We're actually no longer willing to put up with the bullshit. We have had enough. We're fed up. And now we're actually speaking up about it. So what was the actual issue with women being hysterical? Were they actually hysterical or were they just done dealing with the bullshit and they actually started talking? So instead of silencing them through shame, they silenced them through calling them mentally ill. Hey, Kendra, here's some laudanum. Shut up. Right, yeah, exactly. And not only that, but if a wife became too difficult in the early 1900s and late 1800s and long before that, my wife fell and busted her neck. But you know what I mean? I grew up in the 70s and 80s and was taught that women's bodies belonged to me. Yep. Because God is a male and God's the head of the church and males are the head of the household and Mm -hmm. males dominate the world. That's just what we were taught. People who think that we weren't taught that are kidding themselves. Mm -hmm. Still taught. It's still taught. Women don't mean anything. Yeah. If it's not taught blatantly, it's taught subconsciously. It's taught through generations. And each generation teaches it in their own way. And we've learned that women have been submissive for a long time. And we're, again, we're being hysterical here. We are not going to put up with the bullshit anymore. We are not going to put up with the patriarchy anymore. It's done. We're not doing it. We had a woman submit her story, Vanessa's story, that we just posted on our blog, Mm -hmm. and we've been emailing her back and forth, and she's still an active, believing member of the Mormon Church. And through our talking back and forth, I, I mentioned to her, I'm sure you know that Kendra and I, neither one of us are members of the church anymore, and if you ever find yourself having any kind of questions or anything, there's a lot of groups that exist outside of the Mormon church, too. And her next email was, please tell me about these groups. Mm-hmm. I said, the thing that has been very helpful for me is to look into intersectional feminism. Because we can argue about church doctrines and, and crap all day long, but it, who cares what the doctrines are? 
if you start to learn about what your worth is as a female, I think that has more potential to pull a person out of a religious institution rather than to have uh, arguments or discussions with mm -hmm. them over particular doctrines. Right. Empowering you. When you feel empowered, when you've taken back your power and stop giving away your power to organizations or people or the patriarchy, then you learn to speak up for yourself or learn to think for yourself. It's so hard, and, I, and, and again, I, Jesus had some great things to say, but who allowed us to see what Jesus said? Mm -hmm. Nails. When they, when they first gave Bibles to the slaves in the, in the New World, take a wild guess what story was missing. Moses. Mm. They don't want him escaping. Why in the world would we tell them about slaves escaping? So if that's not the perfect example of what men, mostly men, wanted us to know over the course of the last 2,000 years or 40,000 years, mm -hmm. why wouldn't we allow there to be a prophet that was female? You know, like, we're in charge. Let's stay in charge. Mm -hmm. Let's only teach him what allows us to be in charge, you know? Mm -hmm. Be submissive to your husbands. You know, that whole deal is like, who wrote that? God didn't write that. Men wrote that. Mm -hmm. Even if God wrote it, that's not how he would have wrote it. I don't believe God has a gender, but if you say that in the Catholic Church, you can't go there. You know, like, mm -hmm. incredible the amount of effort that is put into, in our society, and Christianity is very good, allowing those that are in power to stay in power. I think the idea that the onus of forgiveness is put on the victim, it's amazing to me how people can't see this. No one that is ever more powerful than the victim, no perpetrator that is more powerful than, the, than their victim, has ever been forced to apologize or ask for forgiveness. Only then someone more powerful than that perpetrator can force that person to, to forgive or to ask for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. that, that doesn't tell you that it's a rape culture. Nothing does. Like, always the onus is put on the lesser mm -hmm. to forgive the greater. What the hell? That's mm -hmm. not forgiveness. That's not what Jesus was even meant, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. All right, y'all. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and have a great Sunday. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on Latter-day Survivors. You can follow us at latterdaysurvivors.org, on Facebook at Latter-day Survivors, on Instagram at Latter-day Survivors. On TikTok, we each have our own TikTok. Kendra's is Latter-day Survivors, and mine is Latter-day Survivors Dana. That's D-A-Y-N-A. You can follow our Twitter at LD Survivors. You can go to our website at latterdaysurvivors.org and donate. It helps us keep bringing this podcast to you. We also want to encourage you to follow Cody Francis. You can find him on Spotify and all music streaming services. Go out and support him too. We thank you guys for joining us and we hope that you'll come back next time that you'll share our podcast, and that you'll tell your friends. We are your hosts, Kendra Solani and Dana Brown. And as survivors of sexual assault, we wanted to provide a platform for survivors to share their stories. Many survivors of all types of abuse may be able to recognize and relate to the patterns of behavior in the victims, abusers, families, and friends of the stories shared by other survivors on this podcast. Often as we escape oppressive family, religious, and social constructs to a safer place, where we come to see our abuse and all related issues, we are better able to process and begin to heal. 
We believe that when we share our stories with others, we can also help them to heal. It can take decades for survivors to find the courage to speak about these things. If it is so hard for adults, imagine how difficult it is for a child to speak up. We hope to normalize these discussions so that children can speak to adults earlier. As adults, we must listen and recognize the severity of the abuse, its potential consequences, and the need for action to stop the abuse as early as possible. Just knowing we are not alone, there are other people who have felt and do feel the same or have endured similar experiences in life can remind us that we are not alone in this. Opportunity to tell my story, I'm gonna freaking tell it. 